0: Perfect. All right. As Jordan said, grab your Bibles, get them open, Book of Revelation. And uh, hey, listen, we're embarking on this little journey, and many of you have already expressed to me how excited you are that we're going to be studying the Book of Revelation. And, uh, you know, I think it would be good to, uh, I hear already, yes, 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 there's a buzz in the room, right? Revelation. And I think it'd be good to answer the question at the outset of this series. Like, like, what is your motivation for wanting to study this book? So, you know, why you're so excited to study this book? What's your motivation behind that excitement? Because it is possible to be wrongly motivated when approaching the book of Revelation. To only see it in terms of a detailed roadmap of the future, and they get totally caught up in that. Or it's also possible to come to the visions and to impose our own desires, our own feelings, our own expectations onto the visions that we're going to be studying. And so the safest approach, the safest approach is to let the Scripture's themselves dictate the terms of engagement. Does that make sense? Let the scriptures dictate the terms of engagement. And to ask the question, which is a basic question in the study of God's word, why was this book given to us? Why are we given the book of Revelation? And so let's turn our attention to the book in the first eight verses, which is what we're going to look at today. That's as far as we're going to get. And, uh, And this constitutes, these first eight verses constitute the prologue of the book or the introduction to the book. And the answer to the question of why this book was given to us is right there in the prologue. Among the other purposes that the book might have, an overarching purpose for this is that we, the reader, would be blessed. And as I think about that, that we would receive a blessing from God for reading and studying this book as I think about that and apply that to where we're at today, I realize we need this book. We need the blessing that's attached to the reading and study of this book because we're continuing to feel the drag, the the aftermath of this global pandemic. We need it as we watch war erupt in Europe. We need it as The economy roils under the weight of everything that's going on in the world. We need it because our politics seem more fragile than ever. We need it because our democracies at times seem more like demagogueries. That's all on a global scale. But you and I know that All of these global events, everything that's happening in the world also has this trickle down right into our lives, right to where you and I live, where we're all already dealing with all of our own personal stuff. Then it all just gets mixed in together. And it just seems like a very tenuous time. Maybe you'd agree with that. We need this book. We need revelation. We need the blessing that's attached to it. We need it for the very same reason the first century Christians needed it. We need the message of revelation. We need the blessing that's attached to it. I'll read all eight verses in just a moment, but in verse three it says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So listen, we're not coming to the book of Revelation for the precise interpretation of future things. Boo! Say the people. We're not coming to Revelation for the precise interpretation of future things, but we're coming to find the blessing that comes from knowing Jesus Christ more and better. We're promised eternal blessings In this book, if we embrace its hopeful message. And so let's get started at this. I'm going to read, as I said, the first eight verses. During this series, we're going to to read every verse of the book of Revelation here as we study it. I've outlined this. It's going to be 33 messages. We're going to get 11 of them done uh, this uh, spring and just before the summer. We'll take a break for the summer. We'll come back to it in the fall. And then into the winter, and hopefully <clears throat> we can get through all 33 uh, messages in this and receive the blessing that God has for us. Revelation 1: one to eight. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so... Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. All right, in your notes and on the screen, hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you, you're following along. That's going to be helpful in this series. The notes also will be helpful. Uh, I am promised, here's what we're going after, I'm promised the eternal blessings of God if I am, first of all, attentive to his word. I want to be attentive to his word. In the first three verses, we discover who the author of the book of Revelation is. It's Jesus Christ himself. The intermediary is this angel that Jesus gives the message to, who's then going to give it to what we would call the initial recipient, the initial human recipient, John, who's then going to send it out to the seven churches. So you get the path by which this message has come to us. The type of literature, the genre of literature here is apocalyptic, what we call apocalyptic. That's the Greek word. In fact, it's the first Greek word that appears here that we translate as revelation. The Greek word is apocalypsis. We have the revelation which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And so in that first line or two, we have a number of notes that we need to just lock in so that we understand where we're going with this series. First of all, there's a very important phrase here. This, word, um, this very important phrase about things that must soon take place is echoing what we heard in Old Testament prophecies, particularly in the book of Daniel. If you're taking notes, jot down Daniel chapter 2, you'll find the same phrasing. We also have this word soon, a word that's awfully confusing to Christians because we see the word soon and we realize this was written 1900 years ago and God's definition of soon must be different than mine. Does that make sense? Because I think soon is like, well, I'll put it this way. If if I send you a text message and you don't answer me in, in about 15 minutes, I assume you're dead. So that's not soon. Okay, like I expect a response immediately to text messages. So my definition of soon is different than God's definition. God's definition of of soon uh, is more like this, at any time. Not necessarily imminently like it's going to happen right now or in the next moment, but it could happen at any time, and particularly that it happens at a time of God's choosing. That's what the word soon means. At any time, at the perfect time, subject to God's perfect timing, now, further, we think about this word apocalypse, this Greek word meaning revelation. It's something that would not otherwise be known and is now being, here's some words, unveiled, revealed, or disclosed. And this relates particularly to the, to the things related to the future, future events. These things could not otherwise be known except that God is revealing them to us. But they're not just revealed to us, they're revealed to us in a very particular way. In fact, one commentator, Fanning, said this they are disclosed to us in a dramatic, highly symbolic, and enigmatic way. I think you would agree with me. If you've read the book of Revelation, you would agree with me. The book is very dramatic. I've often read it and said, this is a better movie than any of the other movies that Hollywood has ever made. It's highly dramatic. It's highly symbolic. Not everything you're reading is exactly the thing you're reading. We don't read it all super literally. We're reading it in a literary way. We're understanding that God is using a lot of symbolism here. And beyond that, it's often enigmatic. That means that sometimes we're reading it, tell me if this isn't true, you're reading it and you just go, I have no idea what that means. Does that happen to you when you're reading Revelation? I have no idea what this is. So the thing is, I'm using several commentators. These are experts in their field who study the Bible for a living and they write big fat books for pastors like me to read, to understand what this all means. They do research into every word and every phrase and all the history and bring it all together. And if you read seven commentaries on the book of Revelation, they would all reflect very different perspectives. And at the end of the day, they would be looking at some of this stuff and going, I have no idea. It's enigmatic. It's hard to understand. It's mysterious. And God has intentionally made it this way. And That's okay. We don't need to lock down every detail. And we'll see that as we go along. So picking up on, the, on, the, on this theme of Revelation, verse one continues, he made it known, revealed it. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Again, this is most, there's other options for who this is, but most likely this is the apostle John, who also wrote a gospel, also wrote three letters. It's understood that he wrote the book of Revelation from the Isle of Patmos. He was in exile there, sent there by the authorities. Likely this was written in 95 or 96, AD 95 or 96, right at the end of the first century, The emperor Domitian was uh, coming to the end of his reign, and that's important because of the historical context. uh, Domitian was particularly cruel towards Christians. The persecution was very intense at that time in history, right when the book of Revelation was being written, and that helps us understand the book of Revelation and why it was given to us. In fact, as we study the book of Revelation and we see it, there's really four very distinct ways that the book of Revelation can be applied. And so when we read it, and we read it in the context of Domitian being the emperor and persecution happening, we read the book of Revelation and we know that there were things being fulfilled that we're reading in the book of Revelation, they're being fulfilled in real time in the first century. So that the people that received the book of Revelation at that time were like, this relates to now. But then from our perspective, looking back on 1900 years, we look back and we look at the book of Revelation and we go, you know what? There's a lot of stuff here that looks like it's been fulfilled or been fulfilled multiple times in the last 1900 years. And then we read the book of Revelation and we go, you know what? I'm reading it and I'm comparing it to what's going on in the world today. And I'm going like, there's parts of this that sound like it's happening now. And then you get to certain sections of Revelation, you go, okay, that clearly has not happened yet. It didn't happen in the first century. It didn't happen over the last 1900 years, and it's not happening now, so clearly that part's future. And all four of those perspectives and those applications of the book of Revelation, every one of those is legit. Every one of those is in play. All right, back to John for a second. I'm trying to give you some of the background to the book here. John John is then described, verse 2, listen to this, as one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So he's the messenger. He's relating only what he saw from Jesus himself through the angel. Very common for John. You see see him here referring to himself in the third person. He does that in the gospel as well. Very common for John. And then he says this in verse 3, blessed is the one, blessed is the one. This can be you. You can be the one. I can be the one. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. How awesome would it be if just in our homes this week, we just started reading Revelation out loud after after dinner. We got together in our living rooms and family rooms and just read the book of Revelation aloud. What if we had a plan to just read that aloud in our homes? Why wouldn't you? And There's a blessing attached to that. Why wouldn't you do that this week? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear you're hearing right now. So that's awesome. There's a blessing attached to that, but not just here following along here, not just here, but who keep. If you got a pen in your hand and you're writing in your Bibles, you need to highlight both of these phrases. It's, it's those who hear and those who keep. It's not just one. It has to be both of these. If you have your electronic Bible open, there's a way to highlight those two phrases. We have to to hear and keep what is written in it, in this revealing, in this revelation. For the time is near. Could happen any time, according to God's perfect timing. And so, so much depends on on this point right here that the blessing spoken of is dependent on hearing and keeping so i'm going to ask you the question are you attentive to his word i mean attentive to it i mean really listening to it not just to check the box not just to say you did it, not just to endure the next little bit of this so you can get out, not to just say you were here, but to have it transform your life. What a tragedy it is when we come to this place and make the effort to be here, to spend this hour or so together, and then walk out having heard the word of God unchanged. What a tragedy. But what a greater tragedy it would be if we went through 33 messages of this and we get to sometime next winter, Lord willing, and we've finished the entire book and nothing at all has changed about any of our lives. What a tragedy that would be. And what we're leaving on the table is exactly what the word promises us here. If we hear the book of Revelation and we believe it and we live it out, we apply it to our lives, there's blessing attached to that. Why would we leave that on the table without receiving it? And so we're coming to this to be attentive to the Word of God so that we receive the blessing from Him and not to satisfy some need we have to know the future. It's not the primary intent of the book. It's to live more fully for Christ. It's to to be as John was. He's described here as a a witness to the Word. A witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Does that describe you? Do people think of you as, as a witness to the Word of God? Do people think of you as a testimony of Jesus Christ? Is that how the people in your life see you? Is that how you live? Not not just your words, but how you live your life. Is it transforming you? You know, I said that when the revelation was delivered to the first century recipients, they saw, as, saw it as applicable to them at the time. It wasn't just all future and they're waiting for it. I'll just tuck that book at the end of the Bible and, and someday that's going to happen, but it's not really applying to us today. They didn't see it that way at all. And nor should we. Because in this book is a call to deeper devotion to Christ and to his kingdom. And, and by the way, that's true, no matter how you interpret the book. The first five the first five chapters of revelation are a breeze to 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 interpret, to preach. But by time we get to chapter six, all bets are off. That's when it gets crazy. Chapter six through sixteen, you can include seventeen to twenty if you want, but that's where you start to see well, I kind of believe it's this and I kind of believe it's this and I kind of believe it's that way. And when we get to chapter six, I'll deal with some of that and kind of lay down some of the groundwork for how other good, faithful Christian people interpret this stuff. But here's the thing, no matter what your perspective is on chapters six and, and following, it doesn't matter what your perspective is. Everybody acknowledges, everybody who loves Jesus and preaches this book acknowledges this is about knowing jesus christ more and better this is about living for him more fully we all agree no matter how you interpret the book and in fact alan bandy wrote a a great little article called views of the millennium and this was on the tgc website and he said this when studying revelation And eschatology, which is the study of last things, it is all too easy, he says, to lose sight of the call of Christ in Revelation, which is to live victoriously as overcomers of sin, the world, the devil, and to remain faithful to him at all costs because he will make all things right in the end. Whatever view one thinks best reflects the teaching of Scripture, it must always be kept in mind that Scripture always presents the doctrine of last things as a motivation for faithful living. Not so your interest in future things can be satisfied. It's all about faithful living. And faithful living, this is the awesome part, Faithful living always results in the blessing of God. That's what we're going after. We want to be blessed of God in this way. In this way, I hope you want that too. And so I feel like that's a whole sermon right there, but I got some more points. So here's the second one. I'm promised eternal blessings of God if I'm attentive to his word and also if I am adoring, adoring of his son. Now, when you read Revelation... You come to the, the, the realization, as you're working through it, you're coming to a realization that the, this book is 100% about Jesus. It's 100% about Jesus Christ. I was talking to a staff person this week, one of my team members, and, and I, I said to them, I said, you know, the book of Revelation is like 100% about Jesus, and it's like 0% about me and you. 0% about you and me. And, and he said back to me, he says, in fact, the book of Revelation is probably 101% about Jesus Christ. And that's absolutely true. Every page speaks of him. And even as we talk about receiving the blessing and we're kind of setting this message up and saying, hey, the reason why you want to read and study Revelation and live this out is because you're going to get a blessing on it, uh, out of it. And that kind of sounds a bit self-serving. Okay, I'm going to come to it so I get a blessing. But then you realize even the blessing comes from him. That there is no blessing apart from Jesus Christ pouring that blessing out on us. And so it's still always about who he is. It's always about what he's done. It's not about what we do to get what. It still always only centers on him. And so look at verse four now. We're gonna see that the book was written as a letter. We've kind of had like three verses of introduction. And then we see that it's, it's written exactly as a letter here. And so the first part of it is this address that you would see in a formal letter. And so uh, this would be the same as you get an envelope, you, you, you put a letter inside of it, you put the address in the middle of the envelope, a stamp in the top right corner, a return address in the top left corner. Everybody under 40 is wondering what I'm talking about. What is this letter you speak of? take it over to shoppers, you put it in a red box, it gets delivered. No idea what you're talking about. Right, okay, well, what about an email? I mean, email, right? You put the to, you have the from, you put the subject line, you send the email. The teens are still like, email? I don't Text? Text message? DM? You with me now? There's a to and there's a from and there's a subject and we talk about it and that's what's happening here. We have the address of a formal letter. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So John's the sender. The seven churches are the recipients. Now each copy of this letter would have had all the letters. In chapters two and three we have seven letters to seven churches, but they all received all the letters. And so the whole thing was written as something that we call an open letter. It's just written for everyone to read. Every one of them had the full account of the visions, just as we have it here. And then there's the salutation, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And that's just a beautiful phrase and it's repeated several times in the book of Revelation. It keeps coming us back to the center. It's all about Jesus. Such a beautiful statement. In fact, John is inviting his readers at this point, just enter into worship with me as we think about all these things that God is going to do. And in this moment of just reading the Scriptures, this too is a moment of worship. This opening section, in fact, is capped off just as we read it with, um, with, the, with a direct quote of God saying the very same thing about himself. Look at verse 8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who, wa- who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now why do we have this two times in these opening eight verses? It's, it's to show the authority is the Lord's, that this word is coming from him, that the power is his, that he's awesome. That nothing is happening that's outside of his control. So all of this is being firmly established. His authority is being clearly established as this book opens. And verse 4 goes on to say this, And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, so speaking of the Father and now of the Holy Spirit and uh, this is a whole topic in and of itself, but the seven spirits, the number seven, the perfect number, this is a reference to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself. If you're taking notes and you want to jot down a couple of references to chase this down, Isaiah 11:2 2, and Zechariah 4, 1 to 10, both speak of the Spirit in this way. And so we have a picture of the Holy Spirit, and then to complete the Trinity, verse 5, a focus on the second person, Jesus Christ three things we learn about him in this verse. There's a whole sermon built in right here. But he is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead, having been resurrected from the dead. And he is the ruler of kings on earth. And all three of these are indicators of his messianic role, that he came as the Christ to save the world. And again, if you're taking notes, jot down Psalm 89, because that's a messianic psalm that speaks prophetically to this Savior who's going to come. And Jesus Christ, all three of these things are mentioned in the psalm. Jesus Christ fulfills all three of them. So this is all about Jesus. This is all about his mission as Messiah in the world. And all of it compels us to adore him. Eternal blessings of God come to us when we adore him. The reading and study of the book of Revelation should always motivate worship. It should motivate personal worship during the week when you're away from this place. It should motivate gathered worship when you're with your small group and you're here on Sunday mornings. But sadly, the challenge here for us is that we can be so self-centered. So it's easy to say that we ought to worship Jesus in this way, but it's so hard to live this out in a world that opposes us. We can be so self-centered, believing life to be about us. Newsflash, it's not. It's not even 1% about you or me. It's 101% about Jesus. As we move verse by verse, because we're gonna spend all these months doing this, we walk verse by verse through every part of the book of Revelation, This point is only going to be reinforced over and over and over again. And so every verse, every chapter, every episode that we study in this book is going to point us back to the worship of Jesus Christ. So let's lock it down now. All right, here's the third one. These blessings of God also come if I am assured of his love. So many people, even in the church, even Christians, struggle to realize that they're loved. And in a lot of ways, we're to blame for this. We're Even as Christians, we can be just so hard on each other, don't you think? We can be so hard on each other over things that are, in light of eternity, so trivial. We can make things big. We can allow them to sever relationships, things that aren't going to matter at all in eternity, sometimes those things aren't even going to matter next week. We're so hard on each other. With us uh, so often failing each other on this point, I think it's awesome for us to know that God's love never fails. The world's love, their definition of love, and by by the way, the world is so very confused about what love is in the first place. If you're going there for your source of it, You're you're destined for greater confusion about this. But I thought about God's unending, unfailing love for us. I thought about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 love never ends, or love never fails, another translation says. I thought about what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, right at the end of the chapter, where what can separate us from the love of God? And he goes through a whole list of things that could possibly separate us from the love of God. And he goes, nope, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. God's love never fails. And it's awesome to know that. And so here's where we continue to work through verse 5. He acknowledges who Jesus is, and then he gives us something that Jesus does to him who loves us. It's active. It's literally in the the, the tense of the verb here is the one who is loving us, the one who keeps on loving us. It's, It's continuous, active love on God's part for us. Even when we fail Him, even when we're at our lowest. Some of you, in fact, in this room, in the last week, were at your lowest, at your worst. You gave some of you gave God a very big challenge this week by the manner of your life, and God still loved you because His love is unending. His love never fails, even when we fail. His love does not fail; it's continuous, active love on God's part to our great benefit. He moves toward us to save us because He loves us. He moves towards us to keep us all the days of our lives as Christians because He loves us. And this is the consistent theme in Scripture from beginning to end. There's just so many verses I could have picked here to talk about the love of God because the Scriptures are full of such verses. But John, because the revelation was given to John, We'll just stick with John, and in one of his letters he said this, 1 John 3, 1, I love this. See, see, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. I mean, that love, by definition, is a, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to show it to you Anyway. It's it's an expression of fondness by God for us who are not really worthy of that. It's an expression of fondness that actually led him to sacrifice his own son. God so loved the world. We sang it earlier. It's a love that takes spiritual orphans, it's you and me, spiritual orphans and makes them sons and daughters of the king. What a blessing. What a blessing God has given to us in loving us. A blessing that extends well past the nonsense of what the world offers, extends well past the abject failures in our own human relationships. In the midst of all of that, we are assured of God's love. We end all of our If you've been around here for any length of time, you know we end every one of our services for, for more than 20 years now. We have ended all of our services with three words. You are loved. I say we've been doing it faithfully for more than 20 years, but I think there are one or two services where someone tried to end the service without saying that, but no one left. I mean, you know about Pavlov's dogs, Right? Pavlov's dogs go to church here. And so if you don't say you are loved, nobody leaves. So that's really why we say it. (laughs) No, really why we say it is because we need the reminder. Because when we say it again at the end of this service, when Jordan comes up here and says it to you, by the time we get out to the parking lot, we may have already forgotten it. We need the constant reminder of God's abundant, caring, unfailing love for us. And when we get that, we're going to be blessed people. All right, a couple more. Still with me? I am promised the eternal blessings of God if I am accepting of His gospel. This is not automatically applied to every person. You must be accepting of His gospel. So I mentioned already from Psalm 89 that the messianic credentials of Jesus were laid out and and it's now made clear that he loves us and thus his mission has been fulfilled. Verse five says that he's freed us from our sins by his blood. Now this is exactly as it sounds. This idea of freedom, of, of being made free, of being released. This is a rich biblical, theologically packed metaphor that's found throughout Scripture. That as his true children, we were in fact not just orphans, but we were bound by our sin. That we were imprisoned by it. That we were condemned to die forever separated from God as a result of our sin. But those chains, to follow the metaphor, those chains were loosed. And the prison doors were flung open. And we walked free in that moment that we, by faith alone, accepted the free gift of salvation that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ being shed. Obviously, John's pointing to the crucifixion and the death, the burial of Jesus Christ. Someone had to pay for your sin. You couldn't pay it. What we know to be true is that no amount of good works, no amount of moral living, no amount of generosity on your part, no no amount of religious observance, none of that is enough. to pay your sin debt. You need someone else to pay it. And the only one that could was Jesus Christ. He paid it with his life. He's the only one who could purchase your release from prison. And then having been redeemed, if that is indeed true that you are redeemed, we are set upon to continue the mission that he started in this world. Look at verse 6. He made us a kingdom. He made us a people, part of God's kingdom. And he made us priests to his God and Father. We are the priests, all of us. Those of us who are genuine Christians, who are uh, followers of Jesus Christ, who've had our sins forgiven, we are the priests being spoken of here. There's no longer a priestly caste. That was an Old Testament deal. The priest was needed to be the intermediary between the people and God, to receive the sacrifices, to put them on the altar, to burn them, to to pray the intercessory prayers on behalf of the people. I met with someone last week in Guest Central after the service, and this person is here and kind of investigating all of this from Catholicism. We had a discussion about priests and Catholicism. We don't need priests. We are priests. At our salvation, we're all made priests ourselves so that we need no other intermediary except Jesus Christ in order to pray and come to the Father. But listen, part of the mission here is that we are made priests to his God and Father. And so we stand between the unredeemed in God as the messengers of this gospel. We fulfill this mission by going to those who do not yet know Christ and we bridge the gap. We tell them about Christ. We proclaim this gospel. We live it out before them. And when they receive that message, they become priests themselves with full access to the Father. If it's not too crass to say this, Another way to look at it is to use the language of finance. We are brokers of redemption. Redemption is a financial term. Broker is a financial term, and we are the brokers. Like a mortgage broker stands between the company and the person buying the house. The broker brings the transaction together. We are brokers of the redemption of Christ. We stand between God and those who don't have it yet. We bring them into that relationship. It's something awesome to think about. And so in verses 1 to 8, we have this prologue to a book that's filled with these incredible visions of the future, and yet the message at the outset is the preeminence of Jesus Christ and the mission of the church. It's no different than any other book of the New Testament you think about it. You think about Revelation being this book with all these visions of the future, and you think about it being so very different from all the other books in the New Testament. It's not. The Gospels are about the preeminence of Jesus Christ and the mission of the church in the world. The book of Acts is the early history of the church. The book is about the preeminence of Jesus Christ and his gospel and about the church's mission in the world. Every one of the letters is about helping churches or individual church leaders Uh, with respect to the preeminence of Jesus Christ and their mission in the world. And so revelation right here at the end of the New Testament is the capstone on all of that. Like every other book in the New Testament, preaching the preeminence of Christ and our mission in the world. And it's all framed around these visions. These visions Being an eternal blessing to us. So let me ask this, if this is true, if we're accepting of his gospel and we understand all of these things and we're really focused on the preeminence of Christ and our mission in the world, if we have all of this, then why is it we worry? Why is it we have so much fear? Why is it we're still so anxious? How much of our worry and fear about current events or the future, for example, or how much of our anxiety over personal issues that we're going through in our own lives, how much of this would be alleviated if we focused on the preeminence of Jesus Christ and if we focused on the mission that God has given to us in this world? What if we centered everything in our lives on the Gospel? What if everything had a Gospel purpose? What if the pandemic had a Gospel purpose? What if the war in Ukraine has a Gospel purpose? What if if the tenuousness of our world economies has a Gospel purpose? What if the cancer your family is battling together your loved one has a gospel purpose? Or the fact that you lost your job or any other issue you happen to be going through. The financial stress you're under. The challenges your kids are facing in school. Every single thing in our lives has a gospel purpose. God is working through all of it, and we need not be fearful or worried or anxious about any part of it. John Frame said this, so far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose. Not to help us develop a theory of history, we could add the future there, not to help us develop a theory of the history or future, but to motivate our obedience. Every passage about the coming of Christ motivates our obedience. And that obedience speaks, he speaks of plays out in the Christian's pursuit of personal holiness, how we live our lives, and in our witness and care for the world, because obedience always precedes blessing. Obedience always precedes blessing. Now I need to pause and just say for a moment, because this is about accepting the gospel. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, you've not yet confessed, not yet had your sins forgiven, you're still in that prison of sin. Then it starts with you accepting the gospel acknowledging that you're gripped by sin, acknowledging that you can't do anything about that and acknowledge that, uh, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the only one who can, that he gave his life to pay your sin debt and simply by calling out to him in faith. Now, with any works or anything you think you can bring to the table, just acknowledging you can't bring anything to the table, just come to him in faith and believe And when all of this happens, notice, when when people are coming to Christ, when they're confessing their sin, when they're believing in Jesus, when they're living their lives for him, when everything in their lives is about the gospel and centered on the gospel, when all of this happens, verse 6, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. God gets the glory for all of it, which is so awesome. He gets the glory because He does the saving. He gets the glory because He does the keeping. He gets the glory because He does the blessing. He gets the glory because He fulfilled the mission. And we receive the blessing because by faith we've chosen to obey Him. All right, one more. I am promised the eternal blessings of God if I am awaiting His coming. Now, at the end of the day, this is what the book of Revelation is about. John presents the theme of of the book right here at the end of the prologue. Verse 7 is critical to this. You should highlight this verse, underline it in your Bible. Behold, he says, behold, literally, indeed, this is an emphatic word. Indeed, he is coming with the clouds. This is like this incredible anticipation that we have as Christians. And so does your life say, again, I'm asking the question, but does your life say, would you wear the t-shirt, I'm waiting for Jesus. I'm waiting for Jesus. I'm, I'm all in on his return. Or does your life say something different than that? Does, it, does your life sound more like you're in this for the long haul here on earth. Maybe you're waiting for something else other than Jesus. And we spend our lives doing this. I'm waiting until I'm done high school. I'm waiting until I'm done college. I'm waiting until I have my first job in my career. I'm waiting until I get married. I'm waiting until we have kids. I'm waiting until we have grandkids. I'm waiting until I retire. I'm waiting. I'm always waiting. I'm always waiting for the next thing in this life, and it can look so much like all we've done is invested in the here and now. Does your life look at all like you expect Jesus to come back at any moment? Does your lifestyle Show that you're waiting for Jesus? Does your bank account, do your investments show that you're waiting for Jesus? The things that you read, the, what you do with your time, all of these things reflect someone who knows Jesus could appear at any time, do they? Recall what it said in verse 1 the word soon, at any time, subject to God's perfect timing. you waiting for jesus because notice when it does happen every eye look at verse 7 every eye will see him again a key phrase if you're taking notes Daniel 7 Zechariah 12 two old testament passages that use the same phrasing all of this comes from there Matthew 24 Jesus prophetic passage in the gospel A very clear reference to final judgment of those who have carried out evil in the world. Every eye will see him. Vindication for those who have suffered injustice. If you have suffered injustice in this world, please know you may not receive, it may not be possible for you to receive vindication on this side of eternity, but you will be vindicated. God will restore all justice. In fact, this is a very prominent theme in the book of Revelation. He goes on to say, even those, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Even those who pierced him. And because this is now a global, this is a global application of these things, everyone's included in this. When these prophecies were first spoken in Daniel 7 and in Zechariah 12, they had application to Israel. And now we see that these applications are beyond the Jews, beyond Israel, to all the Gentile nations, to all of us. This was always God's plan, was to reach the Gentiles, to reach the world. So when John writes here, it has a global application. Even those who pierced him, he means not just the religious leaders who orchestrated Jesus' arrest, He means not just the Romans who carried out his execution. But he means all people who have sinned, anyone who has compelled Jesus to shed his blood. And so he means you. You pierced him. He means me. I pierced him. I called for Jesus to be crucified. I was in the crowd. I pressed the crown of thorns into his brow. I mocked him for his claim to be a king. I wielded the whip. I broke open his flesh. I taunted him as he carried the cross to Golgotha. I caused his blood to flow. I drove the nails into his hands and into his feet. And I thrust the sword into his side. I pierced him. You pierced him. And unless you and I grasp the full weight of that, unless we grasp the full weight of what we've done to Christ, I doubt very seriously that we'll be awaiting His return, that we'll have this kind of anticipation inside of us. We must have this. Our whole life should look like one grand anticipation, awaiting of His coming. And in fact, we should want it so much and we should be so aware of what we've done to Him and how He's just continually showed His love for us. We should so want to see our Savior that we would be willing to give up anything for it. No, I mean it. Anything. Everything that is most precious to us because he is most precious of all. I should be willing to give up every dollar I have, every possession I own to see Jesus. I should be willing to sacrifice my own health, even my own life. I should be willing to give up this job, this this calling, this ministry role that I have to see Jesus. I should be willing to give up every friend. I should be willing to give up my children, my grandchildren. Give up my wife to see Jesus. Everything that's most precious to me. No one should take for granted what Jesus has done. When we truly think about it, we should be shattered by it. That we pierced Him. We should be shattered by the impact of His sacrifice. In fact, verse 7 goes on to say that all the tribes of the earth, everyone on earth will wail. They're going to mourn. They're going to lament His sacrifice. They're going to lament on account of him, on account of the lengths that he had to go in order to save us. What we're seeing pictured here is godly sorrow. It's the fruit of true repentance. It's it's what happens when we are truly repentant over our sin. And a truly repentant person is willing to give up anything for Jesus. Jesus. They're willing to give up everything for Him. Because they can't wait to see Him face to face. I hope that's you. I hope you stand to receive the blessing that comes from awaiting His return. Well, the prologue ends with a An exclamation, a let's get it done exclamation, even so, amen. So shall it be. We're going to hear the very same phrase at the end in chapter 22, verse 20. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And ultimately, it is this promise of Jesus' visible return that keeps us persevering, that keeps us on mission in the midst of a world that's very much in turmoil. And so let me come back to this again. Does your life say, I'm waiting for Jesus. I'm all in on Jesus' return. You and I are promised the eternal blessings of God in this book of Revelation. Let's seek after that blessing. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we are um, laying our lives open before You to receive Your Word. God, again, what a tragedy it would be if we would have come here today and heard Your Word and not been changed. So God, I pray that You would continue that process of transforming us. And specifically, God, that we would be anticipating Your coming your son's coming with such eagerness that it would completely transform everything about our lives. And God, I pray for those who have not yet in faith reached out to you for the forgiveness of their sins and I pray, God, that today would be their day. That whether they're watching in the live stream or here in the room, God, they wouldn't move a muscle until they've called out to you in faith. And so, Father, thank you for your patience with us, your long-suffering. Thank you for your unfailing love toward us. God, as we continue to study this book, God, I pray you would just shred us. Help us to see that it's only about you. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.